It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. My name is Natalie Bucknell and I'm joined today by my co-host, Michael Steindl. Hi, Nat. Hi, listeners. And Kay Wenigal. Hi, Nat. Hi, Mike. Hi, listeners. Only a week to go until the launch of BZE's Electrifying Industry Report. Our guest today certainly knows a thing or two about electrifying industry. Jonathan Judson is the chairman of the Australian Alliance for Energy Productivity, also known as A2EP, and is a leader in energy and carbon management. We were also going to have Alan Pears, a well-known energy efficiency expert and consultant to A2EP, but he's currently fighting a bad cold, so he couldn't join us today. To hear Alan and others at the summit next Thursday, go to the website electrifyingindustry.org.au to book your tickets. Oh, and Nat, just interrupting there, I think there's only a few tickets left, but there were only a few early on Monday. Yeah, there was only one, I think. Oh, so well. I think there were about eight. If you're, if you're desperate, then get onto it quickly. Otherwise, uh, yeah, listen to our radio programs and, and look out for the re- report on the website next week. So in the meantime, now today we've got Jonathan to chat to. So, Jonathan, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure. John, can you start off by giving us the backstory to the Australian Alliance for Energy Productivity? Sure. Um, We uh, were set up about seven or eight years ago because we saw the need for uh, using energy much more effectively uh, across the economy and the opportunity to to double the value that we could get from using each unit of energy. And that's what we mean by energy productivity. So we set up an organisation which is uh, industry-led with researchers, uh, energy companies and the and uh, industry that are participating, uh, all committed to trying to double the amount of value we get from every unit of energy or doubling our energy productivity. So who are the members of the coalition, Jonathan? Uh, we've got 20 um, major members and they are uh, companies that are involved in uh, research, um, um, including sort of Monash and in UTS and various other um, research organisations, RMIT. Uh, We've also got um, energy companies like AGL. We've got um, large technology companies like Schneider and Siemens um, and also some end users like BusyPaper. Okay. And, of course, Alan Pears is a consultant. Wouldn't he be part of that? Yes, Alan Pears works very closely with us and he's my sort of co-collaborator on many of the projects that we've been doing, having a look at various value chains across the economy. Okay. And I think he also helped with the BZE electrifying industry report too. He may may well have. (laughs) (laughs) He gets around. Yes, he does. (laughs) So, John, you've mentioned that you want to double Australia's energy productivity. What what does that mean in real terms? Well, what we uh, what we're talking about is energy is an enabler across the economy, and um, 
it can be used to drive much greater outcomes in terms of uh, the values in every sector of the economy. So at home, it's driving greater comfort, um, health as well as lower bills. Um, in industry, we're talking about getting more output and better better product quality, more responsiveness, as well as reduced bills. Um, so we're talking about getting better outcomes for the energy that we use. And and how how do we know how we're tracking with that? How how will you know when you've achieved that doubling? Well, we, on a gross level, we look at the uh, GDP per unit of energy, um, and that can be tracked. And if you do track it, we're tracking well off that <laughs> that number at the moment. Um, in fact, we, we're um, going the other way. <laughs> we're not going the other way, but we're pretty much flatlining. Uh, whereas most of the economies in the re- in the world that we're competing with are rapidly improving their energy productivity. Um, ours was improving um, s- slowly over time, about half the rate of our competitors, but in the last three years it's pretty much flatlined. So why would that be? Because we've stopped making a major effort to improve it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there is very little... Uh, at state level, there, there are uh, New South Wales government particularly, but also Victoria um, and uh, South Australia are doing a fair bit to try and improve energy performance. Um, the Commonwealth um, set up a national energy productivity plan. Um, they set a 40% improvement target, which we think is grossly inadequate um, to restore our energy competitiveness um, in the light of increased energy bills. But even that target, we're not going even close to achieving. In fact, um, the government is putting almost no resources, the Commonwealth government, almost no resources uh, into that plan and uh, and hasn't got any forward budget allocated for that plan, yes. Jonathan, your, your organisation is formally, I think, known as Australian Alliance for Energy Productivity, but more popularly seems to be A2EP. The two in that is referring to your target to double the energy productivity on 2010 levels to 2030 levels. Is that correct? Well, that's not that true, but yeah, we, we the, the two X we, Australian we, we talk about yes, oh, Australian two, <laughs> two yeah, but we talk about two XEP, which is doubling Australia's energy productivity, um, and uh, yeah, so that, that's uh, from 2010 levels to uh, to 2030. You're quite correct. And to put that in context, uh, Australia. Um, am I correct in saying Australia is the worst of the developed world in energy productivity? Uh, we are pretty much at the bottom of the, of the table and our rate of improvement is also around the bottom of the table. So the, the drivers of increasing costs, they haven't made any dint in that? Look, th- this is the great irony and I guess the great aggravation for us is that, uh, you know, if you have a look at the Commonwealth, they're talking about having a Royal Commission uh, on energy prices, but you know, if, if if anybody is culpable in this space, I think the Commonwealth is culpable by not taking aggressive action to help um, consumers and businesses to reduce their energy consumption. Um, you know, there's a there's this confusion about prices and and costs in the in the debate. Um, people aren't interest, interested in reducing the energy price per of cents per kilowatt hour, for example. They're interested in having lower bills. And lower bills means uh, either lower prices or lower consumption or both. And the best way of improving the cost effectiveness for companies and for households is to do things to improve the way they use energy so that they reduce their bills from you know, reducing waste and improving the effectiveness of the energy use. But I think we should have a Royal Commission into, <laughs> into energy efficiency and energy productivity policy to find out why it is that in the face of rapidly increasing energy prices, 
which were also, I must say, largely caused by poor policy. In the face of those rapidly increasing prices, why the government hasn't put efforts to deliver its own energy productivity policy to substantially reduce consumption and reduce costs for consumers. So coming to the efforts you're making, you've released a report, the Alliance has released a report, a report sorry, called Transforming Energy Productivity in Manufacturing. What are the opportunities in manufacturing for improving our energy productivity and, and what do we need for success in that? The, the key things are um, that there's a lot of opportunity for innovation in our businesses. If you go around to manufacturing industry in Australia, you'll see a lot of museum pieces that are still operating. And, you know, the government has been talking about industry and, and, um, and governments have been talking about Industry 4.0, the idea of the fourth industrial revolution uh, through the digitalisation of industry. I did have to look that up to see what the other three <laughs> were. I didn't, didn't realise we were up to four, but basically um, the STEAM and then the, um, the great scientific advancements and mass productivity and chemical fertilisers and so on, then the digital age, and now tell us what the fourth one is. Oh, no, well, I'll tell you what the four are. So the STEAM age was the first one, and, the, and this is one of the great ironies because we've still got a lot of steam boilers in, <laughs> yeah. in, in manufacturing sites, so we're talking about how we might... And in politics. Yes, well, this is true too. So we've got the steam age, then, then el- el- the age of electricity, when you had el- electric motors and the like. Then there was el- the, the uh, beginnings of automation, and now we're talking about digitalisation and artificial intelligence. So this is the era where we are likely, because of the availability of ubiquitous data across supply chains to be able to have much more flexible manufacturing which responds much more to the consumer and much more efficient uh, operations and much more modular manufacturing. So that's that's the thought and it's driven by technology, both the Internet of Things, which is the use of smart sensors and communications, cloud computing and artificial intelligence and machine learning, which you know, provide the opportunity at least for you know, massive improvements in productivity and including energy productivity. In your report, you refer to intelligent, connected, flexible, distributed and digitised underpinning the disruption of business. Can you give us some examples of where that's happening? Well, I'll give you one example of a project we're working on. Actually, I'll give you a few examples, but one example of a project we're working on, we're having a look at how you could improve the the uh, uh, efficiency of the cold chain, which is the the effectiveness of that chain of of actors that brings food from the farm to shelves and then to our our plates. And uh, one of the we did a project having a look at where the biggest opportunities are in the food value chain for improving energy productivity and one of the ones we saw that was pretty obvious when you look right across the chain is that the uh, the cold chain operates in a peculiar manner because the, the purpose of the cold chain is to keep food fresh and and nutritious and to do that you have to keep it within a target temperature range and what we've been doing in the past is measuring the temperature of rooms in which food is kept but not the temperature of the food so we saw that there was an opportunity using the Internet of Things to be able to monitor real-time the location and temperature of, of fresh food from farm through to shelf at least and then maybe ideally to, to home so that you could actually track the, uh, the temperature compared to its target temperature. So to cut a long story short, we did a feasibility study with a big stakeholder group, proved that this was becoming technically and economically feasible, then did a pilot with a 
a retail organisation and uh, and Food Innovation Australia, and that's now turning into a much bigger pilot because there's a huge opportunity there uh, to improve food quality and to reduce waste. So this is an example of energy productivity because by using energy more effectively and be able to monitor how it's being being used to deliver the outcome required, there'll be a, an opportunity for some energy savings, but but mainly huge opportunity for improvement of the food well, quality. Well, it improves the food yeah. quality as yes, well, exactly. doesn't it? Yeah. So that's, that's, it. It, that's really fascinating. Was there quite a difference in the temperature within the fruit compared to the outside? Well, it turns out that, you know, the, the chain is complex and unwieldy and, mm-hmm. uh, and not very good at keeping the temperature of specific products within their target range. Being able to, and this is the key about the, the Internet of Things and Industry 4, you get the, we were able to get, by putting the monitoring devices on, on the pallets of the food, we're able to get a real-time tracking and be able to see visually the temperature right across that chain and you could see where things weren't being done the way they were supposed to be done um, very clearly and it, it just pointed out the some of the deficiencies of the way that the cold chain operates currently. And it really is, I think, a very good example of where technology can drive immense productivity improvement because just by being able to see across normal barriers that have existed in information from multiple players in a, in a chain, you can actually have a look at how, the, how well the chain is actually doing, delivering the end service that's really required. So if you've got a very clear view of the end service that you want to create, and then you can see right down that chain in terms of how it's being delivered, it's enormously powerful and breaks down a lot of, a lot of inefficiencies that are built into every, every, every system, really. Just in case there's any uh, listeners like me having trouble with the phone line and thinking Jonathan was talking about the coal train and on the wrong program, <laughs> it's the cold tra- chain. No coal, no coal in this conversation. <laughs> no. um, I, I assume these are like little RFID tags that um, basically have monitoring capability and can report in real time or not? Yes, and they, they're basically a, um, a device that's got a, a monitoring sensor um, and, a tra- and a battery and a transmitter. Okay, if you've just joined us, we're speaking to Jonathan Judson from the Australian Alliance for Energy Productivity. So, Jonathan, how about the circular economy? What's the impact of that in changing industrial energy requirements? Oh, well, it, it, it could be quite massive. Obviously, if you're manufacturing a lot of goods which have a once-through life um, and you don't capture the energy that has been embedded in that product, then you could have a, you know, you've got an enormous waste of, of energy resources. Uh, and the, the extent to which both the embedded energy can be reduced uh, in products or that the products could be uh, reused or repurposed um, will have a huge impact. Our value chain approach takes into account material flows and I think that's, that's very important because you don't want to just reduce um, the energy consumption at any particular um, part of the chain. You also want to reduce the ma- amount of mass that's flowing, flowing through the chain. Um, and we, we had a look at, uh, for example, uh, we did a, a study on, um, and Alan was involved with this with us, um, on the shelter value chain, which is in the embedded energy in building materials. And mm. increasingly what will happen um, over the... Uh, over the next 20 or 30 years, as building standards um, tighten up, the operating energy of buildings will substantially reduce 
um, and in some countries it's already it's already got so low, like in Sweden, that the embedded energy in the materials uh, is now the dominant energy consumption over the life cycle of the of the building. Mm. So, That's hard to beat, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, we, we're not close to that yet, <laughs> unfortunately. Our operating efficiencies are so low that uh, we'll be a long time before before that happens. But there is a very substantial amount of energy embedded in, in building materials like um, cement, steel, um, and uh, and bricks and glass. And um, Which BZD you know, is actually trying to address with its report, rethinking cement and electrifying industry? Yes, that, look, the, uh, the, there are uh, big opportunities there. I think we'll see, when people get serious about carbon, I think we'll see a lot more uh, factory-manufactured, low-energy, uh, embedded energy buildings that will be um, supplied uh, with insulation and and PV um, and, and maybe batteries as well. So I think that we'll see, and there's an opportunity for quite a revolution in mm. in. Uh, buildings industry uh, five and and your report points out the the long-term aspects of that because these things are long-lived assets so the 220,000 new homes we built uh, they're going to be performing poorly for a long long time so we need yes. to move that as fast as possible definitely and it's a travesty to me that there's still people um, you know large numbers of people living in say the west of Sydney uh, with poorly insulated buildings um, badly orientated um, no passive solar design mm. um, which which then have to have you know 10 kilowatt plus air conditioners running to uh, to keep you know a, sta- a basic level of comfort um, so I think I think that is a is a travesty for the, the occupants as well as the yeah. energy situation. And we haven't learned much from mm. Europe. There's yeah. such a model. Well, it's, it's, it's hilarious when you when you uh, talk to people that have come over from you know Sweden or Norway, and they say, "I've never been so cold as when I've been in an Australian <laughs> Australian winter," in, <laughs> because the buildings are so poorly insulated and uh, and are so leaky. Jonathan, moving on to another topic, um, can you talk to us about the? Uh, move towards modular and decentralised point of use solutions and manufacturing process equipment, etc. Yeah, the, the, the uh, there's a very nice analogy here between what's happening in, in uh, with decentralised energy supply um, and what I think is going to happen, at least for uh, for energy um, supply. If, if you've got a um, if you've got a, a manufacturing operation uh, that wants to go to a much more flexible and responsive uh, operation, it's very hard to do that if you've got things like central boiler systems, for example. Mm. So a lot of manufacturers still use these clunky old boilers, often often they're 50-plus years old, uh, from Industry 1.0 period. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they, uh, they uh, generate steam and the steam is circulated around the, the factory and then it's taken off to use for various heating things, including you know, washing things down. Um, and I, you know, what we're looking at at the moment um, is how those applications could be replaced with electricity technologies like high-temperature heat pumps, which are located close to the application, uh, and take waste heat from other parts of the operation and upgrade it uh, very efficiently um, to improve energy productivity and improve flexibility of the operations. And so we're doing a, uh, we've done a couple of studies on uh, use of electricity technologies at point of end use to replace uh, boilers and steam systems. And uh, we're, we've got a, a uh, application in for arena funding at the moment uh, to actually demonstrate that in practice. Uh, but 
you know, there are technologies which would allow us to completely revolutionise the way that things are heated in in, in industry. Um, but there's also opportunities, I, I believe, to replace other centralised systems like compressed air systems using modern technology. So that sounds like it's a fairly steep learning curve for some manufacturing businesses and price as well. What sort of resources are there to support that transition? Well, the, uh, we, we need to do a lot of work, and this is where I think the government's got an important role, um, to facilitate and accelerate the transformation of industry, um, and that would have a big impact on energy productivity because, you know, obviously uh, at, at a time where manufacturing um, is having uh, price energy price challenges, I think there's a role for government to accelerate the introduction of new technology uh, to help them to uh, to deal with that. And this is part of what I think, you know, when I made those Royal Commission <laughs> remarks, <laughs> I think that this is the sort of thing that should be should be happening at pace now. Um, but, it, but it isn't. Um, but it isn't, that's correct. Yeah. So process heating is also a significant energy user in many of the manufacturing processes. And this came up in last week's program. Um, it's part of the electrifying industry report. Can you tell us what some of the uses are of process heat and what sort of efficient alternatives are, there are? Well, that's what I mentioned just before in terms of the you know using high temperature heat pumps. Uh, there's also other technologies like high pressure processing. This is to replace um, thermal processes for doing things like pasteurising. Normally. For example, milk or juices or those sort of technology, sorry, those sort of end uses, you have to heat up the product to get rid of the bacteria to 75 or so and hold it there for a number of seconds and then um, that's how the product is, is um, the bacteria are killed. So are there other alternatives such as microwave or other things that haven't been mentioned? There are, there are there are a whole range of electricity technologies that could be applied. The ones that are most, gonna, I think are going to have the most applicability though are uh, going to be heat pumps, which recover heat and uh, very effectively, and also things like high pressure processing. You're already starting to see, if you look at the supermarket shelf, if you see something like pressure juice or something like that, that that's. Uh, the, the meaning of that is that it's been it's used high pressure processing rather than thermal processing to to pasteurise. So it's, a lot of this sounds quite um, capital intensive, John. How are these measures viewed in financial cir- circles? Are there investment dollars available for efficiency upgrades? There are. Um, the CFC has been, and, and through them, the banks um, have been offer, have been offering finance. That I, I guess the problem for most manufacturers is though that most of the finance um, is only available on a um, on a a uh, debt basis, that uh, on balance sheet basis, and um, you know I think there's a need for looking at how uh, the finance could be provided off balance sheet. But on balance sheet means it goes to their debt, and companies that are suffering or struggling with high levels of debt don't want to borrow more to uh, that might increase debt. But there are a lot of projects out there that are sort of 25 plus percent rate of return. Wow! Uh, that, uh, that that could be attractive if they uh, if the companies could can. Um, access and use the finance. Your alliance has got a number of international partners. Who are they? Yeah, we work closely with uh, with the uh, ACEEE and the the US Alliance to Save Energy, uh, as well as the uh, the ECEEE in Europe. 
we used to be very actively involved. There was a global alliance for energy productivity that seems to have lost a bit of steam at the moment, um, partly, I think, because the US um, organisations are finding it so hard to operate now with, uh, with the current president. Um, you know, they've, they've lost think, a bit of steam too. Yes, they're mainly in fight mode rather than, uh, than creative mode at the moment. Um, so I think the, the, you know, Australia isn't unique in having struggles with, uh, with poor government in terms, of, uh, in terms of addressing these issues. So what are the successful countries? And you've, you've mentioned a couple earlier, but who else is doing terrific things and what, where are they making great achievements in energy productivity? Well, in the States, there are some states that are still doing a lot of stuff, like California in particular um, and New York, um, and they've been investing very heavily in uh, innovation and, uh, and reinvestment um, and providing incentives for customers. And interestingly enough, the, uh, the average cost of implementing energy efficiency measures in um, in US utilities is around three or four cents a kilowatt hour, which is far less than the cost of, of generating any power. Um, so it's still, yeah, it's by far the most cost-effective way of of uh, addressing generation rather than to generate more. Um, Germany has got a, a forty billion dollar uh, energy efficiency program as part wow. of their, their forty en- billion dollars. Yeah. Part of their energy vendor program, which is the, the target of that, is to uh, to halve energy consumption um, in Germany by uh, 2050. Um, so that's half actual total impact, yes. energy consumption. Yep. By so, when did you say 2050? Yeah. So they're, they're aggressively aiming to improve energy performance as a competitive benef- a competitive advantage for, for the German economy. Okay. Thank you. Unfortunately, it's just even getting more interesting and we have to wrap up john um where can our listeners find out more if they come to our website would be a good place um it's www.a2ep.org.au um that's got a lot of information about it and a uh, lot of publications too very relevant publications a whole bunch more going on there in the next few months because we we're doing a we've done a project which maybe we can talk about another time which is having a look at how we can get manufacturers or businesses in general to have much more flexible uh, load requirements um, as a way of, of responding to more volatile energy supply because of extra renewables. Okay. Yep. All right. Sounds very interesting. Definitely uh, keep us posted on that. Thanks so much for your time today, John. Thanks, Pleasure. Jonathan. Thank Thanks. you. We've been speaking to Jonathan Judson from the Australian Alliance for Energy Productivity. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the community radio network. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, then you can go to www.bze.org.au and click on podcasts. If you enjoy the program and can donate, please chip in to help cover airtime costs and keep us on the air. Go to the BZE website and click on donate. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.